This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hi, everyone. This is Dave Morris from the East Online Education Committee. You may be aware that the Pediatric Trauma Society has recently updated their guidelines for the management of blunt solid organ injury in pediatric patients. In this episode of the TraumaCast, I have a conversation with several members of the Pediatric Trauma Society who were instrumental in the creation and dissemination of these guidelines. These people are uh, Ian Mitchell, uh, Regan Williams, Judith Hagedorn, and Bindi Naik-Mathuria. I recognize that not all of our listeners are in a position where you're taking care of injured children, and before you decide to skip this episode, I want to encourage you to give it a listen. As the discussion we had is geared towards those that might initially manage a pediatric patient, which really could be all of us, since you never know who's going to show up on your doorstep from private vehicle transfer. And if your hospital is anything like the ones where I have worked, the adult hospital uh, cares for kids ages 15 and up. And yes, 15-year-old kids are in fact still kids, and these guidelines apply to those up to age 18 at least. And lastly, if you have children yourself, or really if you have any kids in your life that you care about, you might never know when this information uh, might come in handy. Uh, Anyway, uh, I personally learned a lot from speaking with these smart pediatric surgeons, and I think you probably will too. Uh, Anyway, give it a listen. Well, I'm joined today by Dr. Ian Mitchell uh, from the Pediatric Trauma Society. Uh, thanks for joining me, Ian. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the Peds Trauma Society? Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. Um, my name is Ian Mitchell. I'm a pediatric surgeon in Children's Hospital of San Antonio. Um, we're a level three trauma center and see a fair bit of uh, non-operative management of these kinds of different pediatric injuries. Um, as for the Pediatric Trauma Society, uh, we're a relatively new society. We're in our having our sixth meeting this year, um, but one in which we really hope to coordinate uh, the care of uh, injured patients uh, from basically birth up until uh, 18 years old, and in doing so, to really start to focus on reaching out to our adult colleagues in multiple different groups, as well as East and others, um, because as we know, many of the the children that are taken care of in the United States with traumatic injuries aren't taken care of in pediatric centers. Uh, and we want to make sure that people we speak to and people we talk to know about our society, know about the work that we're doing, but also that we hear from those people who are on the front lines as well on the adult side and take care of kids. So we're really looking to build our society and build our relationships with other uh, groups that maybe see kids a little bit less than we do. And Ian, what is your role in the organization? How did you get involved in this podcast? So I'm the chair of the guidelines committee for uh, the Pediatric Trauma Society and have been in the chair for about eight months now. Um, And we have slowly been building up our own guidelines, um, but as well as looking out beyond our walls and looking at uh, guidelines that have been produced by other societies and other groups um, and trying to promote their use and adoption, uh, both locally, regionally, and uh, nationally and internationally. 
Okay, great. Well, today I'm going to be uh, talking about uh, the solid organ injury guidelines with several of your pediatric trauma colleagues. But let me just uh, kind of more generally ask you, why have specific guidelines for kids? I mean, I thought they're just little adults, right? Uh, a common, that's, uh, you know, something we hear all the time. And I think that the um, the origin of the solid injury guidelines really speaks to the different physiology of children. Um, it was non-operative management pioneered in Toronto in the, in the 60s and 70s, essentially, that led us down this pathway. Um, and it was that original push for non-operative management in children that extended out into the adult uh, world as a development or as an outgrowth. Um, and so for, for children, we recognize that in many cases, injuries that may have previously mandated operative management by parameters that had been established for adults, um, we discovered that that's not really necessarily the case in children. Um, and that while they may be smaller, um, certainly those who've taken care of seriously injured children are often amazed at their ability to tolerate physiology that often adults may not be able to. Um, and their ability to recover and heal is phenomenal. Uh, and so while there are certainly many crossovers that are important in the adult side, we think that uh, establishing separate pediatric guidelines does accept the differences in physiology that you see uh, in children. Right. And up until this point, when, when these guidelines have come out, what have you been using in the pediatric world? Have there been already existing guidelines or has it just been inherited dogma or where exactly are we coming from? Yeah, for the purposes of today's discussion, some of these guidelines are updates. So the update for the liver and spleen uh, guidelines are really a 20-year update of ones that were produced by ABSA um, originally. On the other hand, uh, things such as pancreas and uh and renal trauma guidelines are more or less de novo guidelines in children. Up until now, we have been following what was essentially what our adult colleagues did. Um, and with less data, as it were, from children. And these guidelines have now at least been able to formalize uh, where we are, where the not only giving people a sense of how to move forward and, and care for these kids, but also really to start to frame research questions for us. Where are the unanswered pieces? What are the, what are the sections that can be tweaked and changed? Okay. Talk a little bit about the methodology of how these guidelines were created and, and, and what went into that, if you would. And so for the, um, the, Renal trauma guidelines, a, an approach using the grade system, which EAST has adopted uh, very rigorously, has been used. Um, and that is detailed, uh, that process has been detailed frequently within uh, the EAST program as well as within the guidelines itself. Uh, the APSA guidelines also used a, uh, an update using a literature search and, is, and updating uh, a formal process through which the original guidelines had been made. Um, and from the pancreas standpoint, there was a pancreatic trauma study group uh, that looked at 
a significant amount of data, not only answered some research questions, um, but also developed a pathway for doing so as well. Okay. Um, after we, you know, kind of go into more detail with, uh, with your colleagues here in the podcast, um, what do you envision, you know, as, as the, uh, one of the leaders in the pediatric trauma society for the guidelines, how do you envision them being used? And maybe in particular, um, for those of us who don't primarily see kids, do you see this as a way of, um, maybe avoiding unnecessary transfers or how exactly do you think that these are best utilized in a non- pediatric trauma center? I think, Dave, that you really touched on the main point. I think that having a consensus guideline, knowing what uh, is going to be followed in a pediatric center can give providers who may not see a lot of these injuries a sense of uh, comfort in that there are regular standard approaches to these illnesses uh, that can be followed both at an adult facility or a primary adult facility, and then can be continued along if needed at a pediatric facility. Uh, For example, especially with the liver and spleen guidelines, the physiology of children often allows them to declare fairly quickly in their course uh, which way they're going to go. Are they going to get better? Are they not? Um, And depending on the resources that are available at an individual's facility, having these guidelines can really allow them to tailor the need to transfer uh, or not. In addition, while pancreas injuries are fairly uncommon, even in the adult world, um, but certainly even more so in children, if a facility is less comfortable, for example, with MRCP or ERCP in small children, then the guidelines give recommendations as to, okay, if we're not comfortable following these, then transfer would be appropriate. And I think from the renal standpoint, it really does allow people to say, okay, if our facility is available and has the resources to provide um, urologic support to these patients that are going to need, that will that will have non-operative management but may need stents or IR or some other some other procedure that's more specialized. It frames that question of transfer much more bluntly. Okay, are there any uh, online resources or things that you'd recommend for people that maybe want to learn more about this or dig deeper into this topic? So the Pediatric Trauma Society guidelines page, which is pediatrictraumasociety.org, has reproduced these guidelines. Those that were also produced in collaboration with EAST have been reproduced on their website. Um, And so that's a good place to start. And that gives essentially down to the raw data, um, or nearly rather down to the raw data, how these guidelines were made. And so if... uh, providers have questions or how decisions were made, those resources are available. We as a society society are going to increasingly populate that page um, such that we serve as a resource and a hub uh, for the pediatric trauma guidelines in general. Okay, great. And we will link to those references that you mentioned in this uh, in this podcast episode webpage uh, for those who are listening and want to go uh, find more. Well, uh, thanks, Ian. This has been a great intro. I'm excited to uh, speak with your colleagues here um, about the specifics of the you know different types of organ injuries. Um, but thanks again, and I look forward to uh, further collaboration with the Pediatric Trauma Society and EAST. 
Absolutely. Let's get to it. I am joined today with by Dr. Uh, Regan Williams. Uh, Regan, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're, where you're located, what your practice is like, and maybe a little bit about how you got involved in pediatric trauma and in the creation of this guideline, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, I am a pediatric surgeon um, in Memphis, Tennessee at LaVonner Children's Hospital, and um, I'm the trauma medical director for our ACS Verified Level 1 Center. Um, we've been verified since 2011, and I took over in 2018 um, as the trauma medical director. Um, my training, my general surgery training was um, here in Memphis at the Elvis Presley Memorial Trauma Center. And of course, they have such a, a long history of wonderful trauma surgery and, and academic trauma research that I really had a big interest in trauma care um, as a general surgery resident, but then found my love taking care of children. And so I'm glad now that I can marry those two things together and really focus um, academically on pediatric trauma care and pediatric trauma research. Um, so um, my goal um, with this guideline and sort of my overall goal in my career is um, to develop evidence-based guidelines for the treatment of pediatric um, trauma patients and to really make these guidelines um, broad enough that they can be used in, in adult centers and combined centers and pediatric trauma centers. Uh, most, about 60% of pediatric trauma patients are actually taken care of outside of a pediatric trauma center. Um, and so I think that our, this collaboration with East is so important so that we can get these guidelines out to our um, adult trauma surgeons and we can be giving the same care regardless of where the child um, arrives. Okay, well that leads us uh, into my first question really. So um, I know that these, these solid organ injury uh, guidelines have been uh, updated and really we've been going off of the uh, APSA guidelines that have been present for about 20 years. Can you talk a little bit about um, kind of the major changes that are in the updated guidelines and the evidence that is behind these changes? Sure. So the original guidelines um, were published um, in 2000, so it has been about two years. Um, and these were based off a um, retrospective study that was multi-center um, that just looked at, at what people were doing and they felt like if they made some guidelines that got people to consistently um, take care of them that that would help to standardize care um, and would limit some of the resources that were being used for um, pediatric blunt liver and spleen injuries. So um, the original guidelines really used the grade of injury um, to base um, admission to the ICU or the floor, um, how long you stayed in the hospital, did you need any imaging, and what your activity restrictions were. And the, the big change and the big thing we've discovered over the last 18 years is that um, grade of injury is probably not a good indicator in children. Um, and so most of the newest uh, papers use abnormal vital signs um, to determine if a patient needs bed rest or ICU care or how often they're going to need labs. Um, and so that's the biggest change between the original guidelines and the updated guidelines is that we um, no longer use grade of injury um, to determine treatment. Yeah, I remember as a pediatric surgery resident uh, rotating during my, my surgery residency, I, I think I learned the rule that, you know, you take the grade of the injury and that equals the number of ICU days or no, the number of ICU shifts, the number of hospital days, the number of weeks of bed rest. And, and um, you know, that that's kind of was the was the dogma that I inherited. Is that uh, similar to what you may have learned? And, and uh, maybe is this guideline really kind of speaking specifically to that, those yes, dogma I mean issues? Yeah, so the original the original guideline was really just based on what people were already doing, not really based on what should be done. Um, so 
Uh, the original guideline had ICU stay for grade fours and fives only, um, so nothing for one to three. Um, the new guideline for ICU admission will just be for patients with abnormal vital signs. So even if you have a four, but your vital signs are normal, then you would go to a regular floor. Um, the hospital stay was grade plus one. So if you had a grade one injury, you would be in the hospital for two days, a grade two for three days, and so on. Um, and now we don't specify hospital stay at all. It's really based on clinical factors. Um, if your pain's well tolerated, if you're able to eat and you can ambulate well. Um, and then the activity restriction um, is still going to be the same. So it's still going to be grade plus two weeks. We think that we could probably make that less, but there isn't really any good data out there to um, say that it's safe. So we're keeping the activity restriction the same as with the original guideline. Okay. So... Um... For my audience, I will put a link to the uh, the actual what's on the website, the uh, APSA website. Um, and let's maybe just kind of go through what, what comes up when you click on the link is, is a page with four boxes. And it has, um, I got to say that this was really cool because it's broken down into admission procedures, set free and aftercare, which is conveniently APSA. So, yes. is, uh, you know, kudos on the branding and marketing. That's that's strong work. Um, we'll talk first about the admission box. Um T tell us a little bit about um, how you distinguish between ICU admission and uh, regular ward admission. And I should uh, mention that we are specifically talking about the, uh, the liver and spleen injury guidelines in, uh, in this section. So uh, just for clarification. Sure. So um, from under the admission yeah. is ICU versus ward. And so um, ICU is just for abnormal vital signs after the initial volume resuscitation. So if a patient comes in and is initially a little hypotensive, but they get um, a bolus and then they are stable, um, then they would go to the floor. But if they continue to have abnormal vital signs after your ED resuscitation, then they would go to the ICU. Um, the next part down is, is um, other things with your admission order. So it's activity, labs, and diet. So if you are admitted to the ICU because you have abnormal vital signs, then you're going to be on bed rest until your vitals are normal. You're going to get QC hour, Q6 hour um, CBC until your vitals are normal. And you're going to be um, NPO until your vitals are normal and your hemoglobin is stable. Um, that um, change was that is is based on sort of what we were doing before and it it really is just you know checking the cbc so you are checking to see if the patient right. still has evidence of ongoing bleeding and they're going to need a transfusion or um, another procedure and then the mpo is basically they're still may need um, a procedure and so we're keeping them mpo until we feel like they're not going to need that so that's your icu care and it's all based on clinical factors um, if you're admitted to the ward um, previously you would have been Actually, the APSA guidelines um, delineated how long you would stay in the hospital, but they never delineated bed rest. But over the years, people um, would write for bed rest for the grade plus one, even though that's not what the initial guidelines set out to do. So if you're admitted to the floor, we actually have no activity restrictions, so there's no bed rest anymore. Um, you will get a CBC on admission and then one um, six hours after injury just to make sure there's not a big shift that you're not catching. And then if you're admitted to the floor, everyone's going to start on a regular diet because those patients that have normal vital signs are unlikely um, to need to go to the operating room or to the angio suite. Okay, great. Um, the next box is procedures, and this is kind of gets to probably where the the, the crux of this guideline really comes down to. And, and uh, let's talk a little bit about this. It's, there's uh, transfusion criteria and then uh, angioembolization criteria versus operative exploration. So um, I noticed that it says signs of ongoing or recent bleeding. 
Um, how do you how do you operationalize that? Is there is there quantified things that you're looking for? Is this based on just sort of standard clinical criteria and um, clinical suspicion? So the um, the tran- the signs of ongoing or recent bleeding for transfusion really are based on clinical factors. So are they very tachycardic? Is their hemoglobin dropping? Um, are they initial responders, but then are continually dropping their blood pressure, increasing their heart rate? Um, so it's those kind of clinical factors um, that would indicate the need for transfusion or for um, additional procedure. Um, under procedures, we you know most patients um, with spleen, most children with spleen injuries do not need their spleens to be taken out. So um, in most centers, if you look at pediatric trauma centers, it's very few patients that ever get a splenectomy. Um, and so we really want to stress that. Um, in these guidelines is to uh, encourage people not to operate initially, but some of them might need a transfusion or two even, but then they'll stabilize out. So instead of immediately taking them to the operating room, really transfusing, watching them closely in the ICU and giving them a chance um, to, to clot off their bleeding and to not need to go to the operating room. The other thing with children is that we do um, transfusion transfuse after one bolus, so we don't want them to continue to get IV fluid boluses before you transfuse. So you should do a 20 cc per kg bolus of isotonic fluid, and then if they still um, are dropping their hemoglobin or hypertensive or tachycardic, then you'd want to go ahead and transfuse them early. And then we use the hemoglobin trigger of seven, which should be similar in adults um, if you're just looking at the labs also. And so, you know, the branch point of angio versus OR, I know is it's a, it, that's, it's always tough to know which way to go. And I'm wondering, you know, in the adult population, we certainly struggle with that sometimes, especially for bad pelvic fractures, things like that. And it seems like whenever I'm in the OR, I wish I was in IR. And whenever I'm in IR, I wish I was in OR. So how does that, how does that play out for kids and how do the guidelines address that ambiguity? Yeah, so it's still a little ambiguous. Um, One thing that is is different in children than the adult side um, is that the um, if you see a blush on CT, that doesn't indicate that they are still having bleeding or that they need to go to angio. Um, So we really, it's not indicated at all. Um, There's a few studies that show patients with blush on CT don't go on to um, have ongoing bleeding and aren't going on to get a splenectomy. So um, there isn't just an automatic, we need to go to angio um, based on the CT. So really the decision to go to angio versus the OR um, is based on uh, if you can stabilize them well enough, what you have at your facility, how old the child is, you know, um, a very small child, it's going to be hard to do an angio with embolization. So that patient, you know, say a two-year-old, if you don't have um, interventional radiology that can do that, then you might be more likely to take them to the operating room than if you were doing a 14-year-old and you had the capability of doing it. So um, a lot of factors go into angio versus operation, and some of it depends on what you have available at your hospital. Um, and then I think it ultimately comes down to how stable the patient is. If you can get them stable enough to get to angio, that's always preferential. Um, but if they really are, you can't get them stable despite um, transfusing blood, then you may need to go immediately to the operating room. Right. So do you have a, a threshold? Like if I've transfused X amount of blood products, then, and they're still unstable or, or do, how do you, how do you make that decision? How do you decide when, you know, you've made a, a good solid attempt at non-operative treatment? How do you sw- flip that switch and are there, are there hard and fast criteria or how do you decide? They're not hard and fast criteria. So it's not going to be, you know, after so many transfusions, you should go to the OR. You just have to watch the patient and see what they're doing. Sure. So 
Um, a lot of times, if you have a patient that you are just giving a lot of blood over and over again, and they never really stabilize for a long period of time, then that's one that I would either do angio or take to the operating room. Um, but if you have a patient that you transfuse once and they're better for like 12 hours and then they send a dip down again, then you can transfuse it again. You may give that patient more blood because they're having longer periods of stabilization. Um, there's a, a, a paper out from the Atomic Group, which does a lot of the background information that we're using for the new guidelines. The Atomic Group is um, a group of pediatric trauma centers um, from all over the country that have come together to do multi-center studies. And, and they looked at like which patients fail non-operative therapy. And most patients are going to fail non-operative therapy in the first 24 hours. So I think if you're still transfusing and right. you're getting into the next day, you really need to think about does this patient need an angio or an operation. And if I had to ask you in your own practice, how, what percentage of your patients do you see? Like, you know, do you take all liver slash spleen injuries? How many of them go to angio? How, how many of them go to the OR? And how many are successfully managed without uh, intervention? Just ballpark. So like not 99% of them are managed without intervention. So I actually looked um, at this at our own center and we only had um, one patient go to the operating room <clears throat> for a splenectomy. Um, and they really, um, over like five years, and that one patient was going to the operating room for a perforated viscous anyway. Um, so it wasn't necessarily just for the spleen, but in the process, the spleen was taken out. Um, so most pediatric patients will be managed non-operatively, like 95% of them. Yeah. Well, it was really the, the pediatric surgeons that taught us in the adult world that we didn't have to be shucking out every single spleen just because it was cracked. So um, I think that that's a perfect example of the way that our two societies can really work together and kind of learn from each other. So, uh, so that's very interesting. Um, the next box is the set free box. Tell me a little bit about that language and, and, and what is that really getting at? Um, this is just your discharge criteria. Um, and so previously with the APSA guidelines, discharge was based on the grade of injury. Um, but now we really want to base it on clinical factors because there's a number of studies that showed that it's safe. And so you can discharge patients once they're tolerating a diet. They have minimal abdominal pain and their vital signs are normal. Um, are there, um, you know, sometimes in the adult world with the higher grade injuries, we worried about delayed splenic rupture or pseudoaneurysm uh, presenting you know, sort of after they leave the hospital. Do you find that that happens in kids or are kids spleens somewhat different? Do they hold together better? Um, I think that they are different. Um, you know, they're newer and more fresh and the tissue is um, definitely different than the adult tissue. Um, when you look at studies um, on delayed splenic rupture, it almost never happens in children. Um, and if it does happen, it's patients that are symptomatic. So the asymptomatic patient, even with a very high grade injury, um, doesn't need any follow-up imaging because they're unlikely to have a delayed rupture. Interesting. One other quick question, again, coming from the adult background is, um, what about DVT chemoprophylaxis? I know kids often don't need it. Um, does that ever come up in these patients? So it does sometimes come up. Um, the most recent guidelines, which were um, an EAST and Pediatric Trauma Society collaboration for DVT prophylaxis, um, shows that you know, most children don't need it. So if you're pre-pupil or less than 15, you don't need it. If you're older than that, then sometimes it is indicated um, and you can go ahead and give DVT prophylaxis even in these patients. Um, the way that the guideline <clears throat> reads is if there's a significant bleeding risk, then you would do um, uh, mechanical, like a sequential compression devices and not a chemoprophylaxis. Um, and so I think that's just up to the um, 
surgeon that's taking care of the patient, if they think they're at really, really high risk of bleeding, then to hold off and just use um, sequential compression devices. Um, and if the risk of bleeding is low, like say after the first 24 hours, then to go ahead and start that. Yeah, that's always something we struggle with in the adult world is how soon can we start it? How soon should we start it? And so that's interesting to hear it from the, uh, from the kids' side of things. Um, one other quick question about, um, about this guideline. Um, we are, uh, you know, we're still using the AAST grading scale, I assume, in these injuries. Does that, does that play into the guideline? And what's the interaction with the, with the AAST grading scale? Is that, is that at all taken into account or is it really just based on clinical factors? It's really just based on clinical factors. So there's been a number of studies, and a lot of these are from the Atomic Group and then originally from Arkansas, which showed that grade of injury really didn't predict um, the need for interventions in children. Um, I think that is probably based on the grading system itself and that it's using like centimeters of laceration or um, size of hematoma. Um, and, you know, the centimeter of a laceration in a two-year-old is much different than what you would have in a 17-year-old. So I think some of that plays into why it's not effective, but there is um, so much literature that shows that grade of injury um, is not prognostic in children. So we've very much taken grade of injury out of this, except for on our active re activity restriction after discharge. Um, we still are using grade of injury because we do think that the higher grade injuries are probably more likely to have a problem if they're re-injured early um, than the lower grade injuries. But other than that, grade of injury has been taken out of the guideline. Right. Well, and that leads us into the last box on the guideline, which is the aftercare. So why don't you talk a little bit about the activity restriction guidelines? And, and we already kind of touched on the follow-up imaging, but if there's anything else you want to add there too. Sure. So with activity restriction, it is um, the same as the original guideline, which is restricting activity to grade plus two weeks. Um, we know that that's safe. There are some single center retrospective studies that have looked at restricting everyone to four weeks, um, and that has been shown to be safe as well. Um, but then if you do everyone for four weeks, maybe the lower grade injuries are being restricted for a little bit longer than they need to be. Um, so we think that probably shorter restrictions are safe, but we don't have any data to support that. So we um, kept with our original guideline of saying grade plus two weeks, and that's for contact sports. So that doesn't mean that they can't go to school and be normal kids and get back to their normal lives, but they can't do contact sports um, for grade plus two weeks. Got it. And anything else with the imaging that you want to add in here? Um, now that we did touch on the imaging, um, it's really just that routine follow-up imaging is not indicated um, because the risk of delayed complications is very, very low. Um, but if you have a symptomatic patient with a high-grade injury, then you should consider follow-up imaging. And we normally recommend that to be ultrasonography, but it depends on what's available in your um, at your center and um, what, what organ is injured and um, what you're looking for. Okay, perfect. Well, I, I guess I have one more question and maybe we can wrap up with this and it's kind of a philosophical question. Um, do you foresee, you know, one of the advantage of guidelines is that maybe gives a little bit more um, um, guts uh, for an adult provider to maybe manage some kids. Do you foresee these guidelines being used in a way that maybe um, helps keep kids in their own communities rather than necessarily being transferred to the pediatric trauma center? Do you foresee this, you know, could a, could a hospital successfully manage a kid um, using these guidelines without necessi necessitating transfer or, or do you, would you still recommend kind of, um, you know, transfer as the default? 
Um, I, I think that particularly with the lower grade injuries or the patients that um, would be going to the ward, so those patients that have um, injuries but are completely normal vital signs, some right. of those could be managed um, closer to home in a center that has an adult trauma surgeon. And I think a lot of these patients are being managed like that now. Um, the other thing that I hope is that we give the adult trauma surgeon the courage to watch them and transfuse them and not immediately take them to the operating room. Um, there's a few studies that have shown that uh, children treated at adult trauma centers are more likely to have their spleens taken out. Um, and, and that's even if you equalize for grade of injury or um, clinical factors. So uh, there's two things. Yes, I think some of the lower grade injuries, if you think that um, intervention is as uh, not likely can be managed at, by an adult trauma surgeon closer to home. And then the flip side is, is we hope that um, at the centers that are seeing a lot of um, children anyway and are taking them to get their spleens out because they're so nervous about their hypertension or their tachycardia that we can convince them to hold off and to transfuse and to maybe save a few more spleens. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for this uh, brief summary. Um, for our listeners, I will put uh, the documents that we've referenced here um, on the webpage. Uh, if you want to go look them up, I'll put the, uh, the APSA guideline or, or what's available. I understand there's going to be a more in-depth one that eventually gets gets published. Um, I'll put the East guideline that you mentioned, and um, I think uh, probably uh, that should cover it in terms of the documents here. Um, if people are interested in further reading, are there any other quick re references that you would add on? There, um, on the APSA page, um, there's the initial four panel, but then there's also a, a short reference um, section. And there was recently a systematic review on um, pediatric blunt injuries, and it's liver, spleen, and kidney in that review. Um, but it has a lot of the papers that I talked about, and that's a lot of the evidence that we base this new guideline on. So I think that would be a good reference for people to look at. Um, and we will, we are in the process of writing a white paper um, to explain all this, and hopefully that will be out within the next six months or so. And so um, people can go to that to get more information as well. Dr. Williams, thank you for your time. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. Okay. I am now joined by Dr. Judith Hagedorn, who uh, is going to talk to us about the uh, renal guidelines. Uh, for those who may not know, the renal trauma guidelines in pediatric population is a... Um, EAST uh, guideline that's been posted on the EAST webpage and actually came out in the May Journal of Trauma. I will refer our listeners there and I will have a link to that guideline uh, that was associated with this podcast. But anyway, welcome Dr. Hagedorn and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start off, uh, uh, it's okay if I call you Judith? Of course. Okay, perfect. Why don't we talk? start by um, having you introduce yourself and talk about your background, your training background and um, how you got involved in this guideline and in the, in the Pediatric Trauma Society in general. Yeah, so I'm uh, Judith Hagen, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Washington currently, and I did my medical school training at Stanford University, followed by my urology residency there. I got very interested in reconstructive trauma urology during my residency, and I uh, wanted to pursue uh, especially a trauma heavy fellowship and uh, was accepted to the University of Washington Reconstructive Trauma Euro uh, Fellowship um, led by Dr. Hunter Wessels and was lucky enough to get the, into um, that fellowship and was trained um, by Dr. Wessels and, um, at the Harborview 
a hospital where I'm currently located at. We are a level one trauma center that serves the Vanya region. Um, it's a quarter of the U.S. landmass. Um, of course, we don't see a quarter of the uh, U.S. population, but um, it's a very busy trauma center. A lot of pelvic fractures, kidney injuries, and so I have been exposed to you know pediatric trauma um, throughout my fellowship training and now while I'm a faculty member here. And uh, Dr. Wessels um, put me in touch with our Harborview Injury Prevention Center, led by Dr. Monica Vavilala. And Dr. Vavilala actually um, was attending a um, Pediatric Trauma Society meeting and uh, uh, was approached to uh, update the Pediatric Trauma, Renal Trauma Guidelines and thought of me. Um, and that's how I got involved. And I headed the entire project um, for approximately a year and a half um, with a great team. And that's how those uh, guidelines came uh, along. Yeah, I think uh, for those who may not be aware, this guideline represents, I think, a, a really good demonstration of the cross-pollination that is occurring with the Pediatric Trauma Society. In addition to Dr. Hagedorn, uh, the second author is actually Nicole Fox, who's one of our well-known and uh, very well-published uh, East physicians. So um, again, I think this is a really good demonstration of the collaboration and, and really one of the reasons why many of us got involved in trauma in the first place, that, that, that opportunity to work across specialties and across disciplines. And I think that's, this is a great demonstration. So I, I commend you on, and your co-authors for this project. Yeah, it was a pleasure to work with uh, uh, Dr. Fox. Um, she had experience with um, the grade um, methodology that we use for those guidelines, and she was a, a wonderful help. Um, Dr. Ferrada was our statistician, and then we had um, pediatric urologists, uh, general urology and trauma, uro um, sorry, uh, general surgeons and trauma surgeons uh, help as well. Um, Dr. John Drouse, um, who is the senior author, author was... Um, uh, heavily involved in the project, just like uh, I was. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, um, well, let's let's dive right in here. Um, there are three PICO questions. Uh, this guideline uses the grade methodology, and there are three PICO questions. And uh, the first PICO question is where I wanted to start. And basically, this question is, um, uh, well, I'll just read it. it. says, in hemodynamically stable pediatric patients with blunt renal trauma of all grades, should operative management versus non-operative management be performed to decrease the incidence of renal loss, blood transfusion, urinoma formation, additional procedures, and additional imaging. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the recommendation for that PICO question, and um, and then I guess I have a follow-up question after we talk about that. So why don't you go ahead with that that much? Our recommendation to the PICO question is in pediatric um, patients with blunt renal trauma of all grades, uh, so grade one through five, um, as it is created in the AST, uh, grade for renal trauma, we strongly recommend non-operative management versus operative management in hemodynamically stable patients. Uh, and it's important to point out blunt renal trauma um, because uh, there's, of course, penetrating trauma that might need different management. Um, and it's important to point out that it's for all grades, um, even for high-grade injuries. So grades four and five, we uh, strongly recommend non-operative management. Um, so the um, traditional shattered kidney um, that was, um, uh, you know, in the past thought that needed to be removed or go to the operating room immediately, I think those uh, pediatric patients can safely be watched if they're hemodynamically stable. And that's another important message in that um 
a recommendation that the patient needs to be hemodynamically stable because if they are not then uh, going to the operating room uh, to save their lives is very important. Right. And um, let, uh, just for my own curiosity, um, I know uh, in speaking with some of your other uh, colleagues on for this podcast, we've talked about how the definition of hemodynamically stable in kids is maybe a little bit more generous than adults. Uh, it seems like for liver and for spleen, we'll even tolerate some transfusion and things like that. Would you say that that's the same for, for kidney trauma? That's correct. Um, I think for pediatric patients, um, you know, they, their blood pressure hangs in there for, for quite a while before they then uh, get hemodynamically unstable. But I would definitely say that if a patient needs blood transfusions and can be watched safely with a little bit lower pr blood pressures, that, that should be pursued rather than operative management. Because we know that if you go in and operate on a kidney that's, um, you know, shattered or has such large damage that uh, it, you end up with a nephrectomy. Yeah. And that's kind of where my next question goes is, um, can you talk a little bit about cases where operative intervention is warranted and then maybe some of the surgical techniques and uh, maybe renal sparing options that are available? For those of us who don't primarily operate on kidneys, maybe this would be a good general review for us as well. Yeah. So uh, um, here at Harborview, we uh, usually take the patients to the operating room that um, are unstable in the emergency room where they are bleeding so heavily from their kidney injury that um, if you do not operate, their life would be at jeopardy. And um, they are rushed to the crashed, really, to the operating room and um, the kidney uh, would need to be removed. There's no, not really any, um, you know, uh, a time to repair that kidney in those patients. Um, sometimes when we have uh, uh, general surgery, explore the abdomen for other injuries and a large uh, grade four renal injury is found with the collecting system being um, uh, also damaged. Uh, we could repair that in a controlled fashion if this, the patient is stable in the operating room. But otherwise, uh, usually the indication really to operate on any renal trauma um, these days is uh, if the patient is unstable and that, you know, usually gets, um, you, you find them unstable in the ER or when they get admitted to the ICU, um, that they get unstable there. Uh, for non-surgical intervention, uh, the patient, if they drop their hematocrit over and over and get blood transfusions and the hematocrit or their uh, blood pressure doesn't stay stable, then we uh, usually uh, have them go to interventional radiology and uh, an angiogram is performed and uh, the bleeding vessel found. And even if it's coiling of the main renal artery, um, then they might have to do that. Of course, that that, to the, of the kidney, but uh, it saves them a large operation. Right. And that kind of gets into PICO question number two, um, which I'll read here. It says, in hemodynamically stable pediatric patients with high-grade uh, AAST it's uh, grade three, three through five, renal injuries from blunt trauma and ongoing or delayed bleeding. Should angioembolization versus surgical intervention be performed to decrease incidence of renal loss, blood transfusion, and complications? And you just told us that the recommendation from the guideline is to pursue IR versus operative strategy. Correct? Uh, correct. Yeah, so the for PICO question number two, our recommendation is in hemodynamically stable pediatric patients with high-grade uh, trauma, meaning grade three to five, uh, grade by AAST, um, renal injuries, we strongly recommend angioembolization versus surgical intervention for ongoing or delayed bleeding. Um, so if the patient, for example, gets admitted to the um, pediatric ICU, 
uh, gets blood transfusion, the hematocrit might respond initially, but they continue um, with the decrease in the hematocrit over the next hours um, or need more blood transfusions, then um, it is wise to send them to interventional radiology before going to the operating room um, to um, do an angiogram and find the bleeding vessel. And you know, sometimes it's a, a branch um, that is, you know, uh, can be coiled and, and hopefully some uh, of the kidney parenchyma can be saved. And I don't think the guideline addresses this, but maybe you can give us your opinion. Sometimes um, our intervention radiologists will use gel foam to embolize bleeding vessels that eventually, you know, will be absorbed and broken down and there will be revascularization. Do you think that that is something that is feasible in kidneys or is it better and safer to um, to just give, use the permanent coils? Very good question. Um, I actually had a case where um, maybe the renal artery needed to be um, uh, coiled and we had a conversation with interventional radiology to hopefully not use an actual coil because if you had to uh, take the hilum in an open fashion, then you have a coil in there so you wouldn't be able to use a stapler or maybe even tying off the vessel would be hard or more difficult because of the coil in there. Um, so I think uh, the gel foam is, is definitely something that um, should or can be used and, and um, might be advantageous um, if interventional radiology feels like that's a safe uh, safe to do so. But yes, revascularization would be even um, more ideal uh, if if that can be done yeah. or if that happens after after the gel foam um, uh, absorbs. Right. Um. One of the things that I thought was interesting about this PICO question in particular um, and the recommendation was um, the guideline says, and this is something that I think is is frequently faced by people who who are doing these guidelines, and um, I would also say is something that is not well understood by the maybe the casual grade um, observer, and that is that um, the overall quality of evidence for this PICO question was um, was felt to be very low. And yet, the recommendation was a strong recommendation. One of the one of the things I've heard in passing about the grade methodology is, oh, you you know, you can't make strong recommendations anymore. But in this case, you you all have shown that you you can in fact make strong recommendations even when the evidence is not perfect. Can you comment on the methodology and why a strong recommendation was still felt to be appropriate? Yes, uh, Dr. Fox um, during the you know process taught us that you know that you can make uh, a strong recommendation even though you have um, uh, very low uh, evidence. I have to say, for all the pediatric um, tr you know trauma, there's single institution studies out there. There's no randomized controlled trial, so all the evidence is is quite low. Um, but uh, when you look at the question itself, if you consider what the patient um, would most likely want, um, you know, angioembolization versus a large incision to do um, a renal operation, then um, we uh, as a team decided to give this a, a very strong recommendation considering uh, the patient um, and um, um, having, you know, uh, the, the um, balance between a desirable and undesirable outcomes. Um, the undesirable outcome being a nephrectomy. Um, and looking at the patient's values and the um, prefaces and costs and resources, uh, we as a team um, gave it still a strong recommendation for angioembolization, even though the evidence uh, in the literature is not quite um, there. Right. This seems like one of those situations where common sense 
exactly. can make up for the lack of, you know, ironclad, double-blind, randomized uh, evidence, which I, I, I think exactly. is appropriate and, and very important for people who are trying to do one of these guidelines to remember that strong recommendations can still be made. So uh, this is a great example of that. Um, well, let's, uh, let's move on to PICO-3. I have a couple of other questions about, you know, kind of the workup and evaluation um, in general, but let's move on to PICO-3 and stick with the guidelines. So PICO question number three was uh, in pediatric patients with blunt renal trauma, should blood pressure checks versus no blood pressure checks be performed on follow-up to diagnose hypertension? This gets at the, uh, the uh, correct me if I'm wrong, my urology is a little rusty, but this is the Goldblatt kidney phenomenon. Uh, it's a page kidney. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Is it page, again? Yeah, page kidney. Page kidney. Okay. Right. Why don't you tell us more about this recommendation then? Um, perfect. So the gold blood kidney uh, is technically a, uh, a caused by a narrowing or occlusion of the renal artery, which could of course happen with the IR embolization, uh, where the blood flow to the kidney is reduced. And you, in response, get an increase in renin and therefore um, vasoconstriction and uh, hypertension. And then there's also a term um, that we see in renal trauma. It's a page kidney um, that was uh, tested in dogs before where the kidney is compressed. And in, uh, in humans, that happens when uh, there's a kidney trauma and a large hematoma that is inside the renal capsule and compresses the kidney itself. Again, there's uh, that compression causes decreased blood flow to the kidney and therefore renin-mediated um, hypertension. And so that can be seen in the acute um, uh, phase of renal trauma. Uh, and maybe even hypertension can be seen in the hospital during the hospitalization but could also happen um, if the hematoma doesn't uh, resolve or if the, the vessels, you know, don't open up and, and you have uh, lasting hypertension. I think that for the pediatric uh, uh, patients that are uh, in the literature that have developed hypertension, for some of them, it's unknown whether it is, you know, um, what what the reason is for their hypertension, I, I would say. Uh, the page kidney we usually see on imaging if there's a large hematoma uh, around the um, kidney. And the um, gold blood uh, kidney could be seen on ultrasound as well, where you uh, get Doppler to measure the flow through the arteries. But those sometimes are both normal for even patients with um, hypertension after renal injury. So I think there's still questions to be answered uh, on why um, some of the patients develop hypertension. See, this is why I love the collaboration. I'm learning all kinds of stuff about the kidney here. So um, the PICO question then, it talks about, it, it recommends routine monitoring, but talk to me a little bit about timing, frequency, things like that. Good question. So our whole team had um, exactly the same questions. How often should we monitor? Um, and we, in the literature, there's very sparse um uh, you know, that data is very sparse and therefore we couldn't make any recommendation on how often um, the PICO um, recommendation is in pediatric patients with renal trauma. We strongly recommend routine blood pressure checks on follow-up to diagnose hypertension. It would be on routine follow-up with a pediatrician. Um, I had talked to a pediatrician about those recommendations and um, 
the response was good luck measuring blood pressures in children after they you know yeah. get released <laughs> so it's a recommendation because we know about four to five percent of children who have suffered from a renal uh, trauma um, develop hypertension and would uh, it's good to pick that up uh, when they leave and it, some develop it in during the hospitalization but some can develop it um, soon after um, so on a routine check with a pediatrician you know during vaccination or yearly um, the blood pressure should be checked and it might be need, might need to be driven by the patient. Uh, so when they discharge, um, that would be something that the physician should co counsel the parents and the uh, child on that they need to have the blood pressure checked with their pediatrician on follow up. Right. And if something were to arise, then obviously referral to a pediatric nephrologist for exactly. management for interventions. Okay. Um, well, I outside of the guideline, um, one of the questions that I get probably several times a day when I'm on trauma call is we'll run the patient through the scanner and then the tech will ask me, do you want delay images? And um, that is, I know it's not specifically addressed in the guideline, but um, what is your opinion about the role of delayed images um, in the routine workup? Maybe not necessarily of kids, but also in kids. Is that something that we should routinely get? Uh, good question. Um, here at Harvey, we have uh, patients usually go through the CT scanner and at the time of the first scan, someone briefly looks at the kidneys and if there's any kind of uh, worry um, for an injury, then delayed images are get, uh, are, um, are uh, ordered and, and um, usually the, the child then, uh, you know, goes again through the scanner 10 minutes later, uh, which is very important for us in urology because if you don't get those delayed images, you haven't really staged the uh, injury uh, completely. So you do not know if there's a collecting system injury or ureteral injury, uh, mostly ureteral injuries. Um, and with kids, uh, a ureteric pelvic junction um, injury is more likely than in adults. So I think there should be a high suspicion um, for that and delayed images are very important. Sometimes when patients get transferred to our center and did not get delayed images, there's a window of about six hours where contrast still continues to be extruded and we can ran, run them through the scanner again uh, to get those delayed images if they come um, to us in a timely manner and did not get those. But um, I think if there is any question about a renal injury, delayed images are uh, really a must for uh, correct staging. And is there any accepted standard for the timing? Like, do, is it, do we have to wait uh, 10 minutes, five yeah. minutes, three minutes, uh, 20 minutes? 10 minute delayed images to get a nice uh, urinoma uh, protocol, which is uh, an excretion phase where you see the collecting system in the uh, kidney as well as the uh, ureters down all the way to the bladder. Okay, excellent. Um, well, my last question um, is, uh, this is kind of a general one, and this comes up, seems like all the time whenever there's a kidney injury. Um, you know, I'm a general surgeon, I'm a trauma surgeon. Um, since most of the care of these patients is going to be not non-operative, one of the questions that always comes up when and or, or even if we should consult a urologist. What is your opinion about that? When, when is the right time and what is the right patient to consult urology if most of these things are going to be managed non-operatively? That's a great question. And there's a huge variability uh, in the nation on how involved urologists are in um, renal trauma care. Um, for us here, 
at Harborview, we get consulted on grade ones up to grade fives. Um, and we have a very close relationship with our general surgeons who consult us right away if there's any kind of kidney injury, because we are very interested in renal trauma. And if there was any kind of surgical management, um, we want to be there. So we want to know when the patient comes in uh, and uh, we get consulted for for each one, but then other institutions do not have um, urology involved, but only if there's complications like a urinoma, infected urinoma, and whether or not a stent needs to be placed if there is um, a leak found on uh, delayed imaging, meaning delayed by a few hours or days, like uh, 48 hour delayed imaging, uh, which, which is usually recommended for high grade renal injuries. Um, so, you know, what's the best way? I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I think involving a urologist early on, they need to um, be interested in renal trauma and also have the education that they make the, the right decisions at the time. Um, if general surgeons are comfortable taking care of the kidney, that's, uh, you know, of course, uh, especially if because there's a non-surgical management um, oftentimes the urologist can um, just be called if there is uh, a complication. So it's really, I think, institution dependent and also, um, you know, the availability of the urologist uh, uh, is, is um, critical. Right. In our, in our particular instance, I feel like sometimes we could overwhelm them if we call them for everyone. So I think that guideline of, you know, complications or more complex presentations is probably a, a good rule of thumb. Exactly, exactly. And I think for our institution, we are a little bit special in that way that we find out about every single renal trauma. Um, and uh, we want to keep it like this, but uh, I definitely um, uh, think other institutions do not have the manpower to see every single renal trauma um, yeah, and follow it. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have a great thing going up there. So that's yeah. fantastic. Well, uh, Judith, thank you for your time. I appreciate your uh, insights and wisdom into this guideline. Again, for our listeners, I, I uh, refer you to the East webpage where this is posted. And um, it's actually very concise. Uh, you can read it in probably five, 10 minutes. And um, really some important questions uh, for those of us that occasionally manage kids. So uh, thank you, Dr. Hagedorn, for your time. Thank you for having me. Okay, joining me now is Dr. Nike Mathuria, uh, Dr. Bindi Nike Mathuria. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit, uh, Bindi, first, uh, your educational background and where you currently work and how you got involved with the creation of these solid organ injury guidelines. Um, sure. Hi, David. So I am a uh, pediatric surgeon at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. I'm also the trauma medical director here. And um, I trained it uh, for general surgery residency at Baylor College of Medicine, uh, did my pediatric surgery fellowship at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and I came back here for critical surgical critical care and have stayed on as a um, trauma medical director at Texas Children's. I'm also a general pediatric surgeon. Um, the reason I got involved in, interested in pancreatic trauma in children is because I saw a lot of variability in how it was managed um, during training and even among my partners. Uh, basically, if a child comes in with a pancreatic injury, most common uh, type being a grade three pancreatic injury where um, there's a crack of the, in, you know, the pancreas right at the body, often from like a bike handlebar or something like that. Um, depending on which surgeon is on call, the child actually you know, either gets a huge operation or gets none at all. And I thought that that was so variable. Um, and looking in the literature, there really wasn't very good guidance on which way to go. Uh, you know, we have come such a long way with um, managing 
splenic injuries, liver injuries, uh, kidney injuries, but the pancreas is, um, you know, a question that remained unanswered. And so um, I've spent most of my career actually studying this, um, you know, starting with just reviews of the literature, doing some surveys to assess the variability and confirm that, that there is a lot of variability in how these are managed. Um, and then um, putting together this guideline um, for how to manage non-operative uh, management of, pan- of pancreatic trauma. The um, as you know, the the APSA guidelines for uh, blunt liver and spleen injury came out like I think in the early 1990s, and they really provided a nice. Um, guideline for how to manage splenic and liver lacerations. And because of that, the care has become pretty standardized, you know, across the um, country and probably the world. Um, and so what I wanted to start off with was something similar for pancreatic um, trauma of the non-operative management, because that's where the most variability was. And then we're also doing a prospective study now, prospective trial now, using uh, management use it with this um, non-operative guideline compared to patients that get, get an operation to then study the long-term outcomes of operative versus non-operative management for this type of injury. So step one was just trying to come up, was trying to standardize the care for the non-operative guideline. And that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, I think it's um, it's very admirable, actually, if our listeners want to go and uh, PubMed search your name. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating because uh, so many articles come up about pancreas trauma in kids. And I think, you know, a lot of our listeners are early career trauma surgeons or, or perhaps in training. And this is a perfect example of how someone develops a career niche. And it's, it sounds like it started out from a, you know, a clinical scenario that you were faced with and it has developed into, um, you know, a career's worth of work. And so I think it's a very admirable uh, example of that, of, of how that develops. So, um, I encourage you to go uh, look at that if you if you're listening. For, by the way, for those uh, listening, the uh, I will put a link to the uh, to the guideline the, the, the pathway that we're going to be discussing here. Um, if you're interested or don't have access to the link, it's in the uh, October 2017 uh, Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, um, a proposed clinical pathway for non-operative management of high-grade pediatric pancreatic injury based on a multi-center analysis, Pediatric Trauma Society collaborative. And uh, Dr. Knight Mathuri is the lead author on that. So um, let's go ahead and dive right in. Um, do you want to uh, kind of take us through maybe kind of the take-home message of, of this of this uh, pathway and, and kind of just uh, give us a broad overview of what it, what it entails? Sure. Well, the take-home message is less is more, um, which I think is a take-home message for a lot of things in pediatric trauma. Uh, we're just learning that the, you know, the body of a child is just has these miraculous ability to heal itself. Um, pancreatic injuries, as you, as you know, get a lot of, um, people get very worried about pancreatic injuries because of all the bad outcomes that can happen uh, from fistulas, uh, prolonged fistulas, um, huge pseudocysts, necrosis, things like that. Now, a lot of these are uh, problems in adults. In children, um, we are finding that, you know, even if you do get a pseudocyst or fluid collection, it usually doesn't lead to a long-term sequela. It usually doesn't, you know, lead to symptoms. And um, fistula is extremely rare. And so the the um, pathway was developed by putting together data from 20 pediatric trauma centers on how they managed these patients non-operatively. 
And if you look in on the paper, it ended up being 86 patients. And if you look on, and this is a really rare injury. I mean, a center may see two, two or three a year. Or, and so 86 patients is quite a lot right. um, for this type of injury. Um, and if you look at figure four, it right. shows that there's a lot of clinic uh, variability in how these patients are managed. So um, almost everyone gets a CT at presentation. That's what I did. That's how the, the uh, injury is identified. Almost everyone gets labs, amylase and lipase at presentation. But after that, it's kind of all over the board. So some people are too scared to feed these these patients because they're worried about, you know, um, increasing pancreatitis or, or causing a pseudocyst. So they do TPN, they do J-tube J feeds. Um, some people feed them right away. Um, some people get an MRCP. Some people try have tried ERCP with a stent or, um, or just, uh, you know, like a sphincterotomy to, to try to um, get some passive drainage. Um, some people have um, keep repeating ultrasounds and images to kind of see if fluid collection is developing. And then when a fluid collection does develop, some people intervene on it. Again, that varies as well, whether it's aspiration or, um, you know, ERCP with endoscopic drainage or drain placement. Um, and then, uh, you know, also when patients are discharged, some are actually discharged on TPN or on J-feeds for a while, um, and then others are, are just um, sent home on a regular diet. So there's a lot of variability. So what we basically did is we just kind of um, did the 50, drew a, 50, uh, a line at 50% and said, okay, if um, centers that have been doing this for a while, these are all experienced pediatric trauma centers, are doing these pra- following these practices is at least 50% of the time or more, we're going to incorporate that into the algorithm. And then after that, we had a, um, an expert panel and, um, you know, using basically just consensus, um, uh, kind of using the Delphi process, came up with the guideline. So if you look at the guideline, um, starts off with you have the injury and then you have your baseline enzymes. Um, admit these, these patients for pain control. Avoid routine serial imaging or serial enzyme levels. We found that amylase and lipase, um, after after the diagnosis is made, it doesn't matter what their amylase and lipase is. They all tend to rise around day two, and then they all tend to fall. And if you freak out at day two and see that your amylase is 10,000, and that means you need to operate on that patient, then every patient would end up getting an operation. If you just wait, then they tend to fall. And so they can get, they can be very confusing. And we also showed that they um, the, the levels didn't really correlate with um, either the grade of injury or um, any of the outcomes, including pseudocyst or um, anything like that. And so we decided just you know don't check, <laughs> just uh, just. So like like many other things in in uh, care of children, it's based solely on symptoms. Based solely on symptoms, absolutely, and um, and so we uh, you know and then avoiding serial imaging as well. It's it's the same concept, right? If you you have something, then you feel like you need to act on it. Um, you know that they're all going to have an acute fluid collection there, right? If you have a duct injury, but whether or not that then 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 um, organizes into a organized collection that four weeks later you're not calling a pseudocyst is. Um, you know, who knows, right? And so if you keep imaging them, and most of these uh, patients aren't in the hospital for four weeks. So these images are um, showing fluid collections early. And uh, we felt that, you know, kids may be getting unnecessary interventions um, because of these. If they're, again, if they're not symptomatic, then then just leave them alone. And so um, our pathway recommends initiating an oral diet uh, when some improve, when there's some improvement in tenderness and pain. And that also kind of goes along with the more recent management of acute pancreatitis, where um, early feeding is now more encouraged, and um, you know the the old school thought process of uh, DPN or distal feeds is kind of um, getting uh, less and less popular, and um, 
And then, you know, basically just discharging based on symptoms or when the pain pain is adequately controlled. Don't get labs before discharge. Don't re-image before discharge. Uh, Just discharge them if they're doing okay. I mean, a low-fat diet is generally recommended, but who knows if the kids follow it or not. Um, If... If and the other arm is if they don't do well. So if they if they don't do well, then the question is always at what point do you operate on them? Obviously, um, after two or three days, it gets harder to operate on the pancreas. There's a lot more inflammation and a lot more uh, risk of uh, leakage from the staple line and things like that. And so um, and so that that that's what makes everyone very confused. But what we kind of decided is after one week, if they're really not doing well. Um, or they're looking worse, then get an ultrasound at that time uh, and repeat labs. If the ultrasound shows that there is an organized fluid collection there, um, or the labs show that there is really severe pancreatitis, then um, hold the diet and wait till the symptoms improve and initiate TPN at this point. And um, if the fluid collection does not get better or the symptoms don't get better after just holding the diet, then something may need to be done for that fluid collection, such as drainage or, or something else. That's not prescriptive, you know, whatever intervention, um, you, they can decide what intervention needs to be done. But I think that this, uh, and, and, you know, since putting out this pathway, um, we certainly have followed it and all the other centers are following it as well. And it's been quite successful. And I think people have been really kind of pleasantly surprised that, you know, with the less is more approach that they, they tend to get better. Yeah. Um, well, it's definitely a nice systematic way of thinking about it. And, and, you know, coming mm-hmm. from the adult world myself, you know, it, the idea of not checking cereal lipase or cereal amylase is, uh, is certainly different than I would do for an adult, but, uh, like many other things, maybe this will help influence better management of adult patients as well. So, uh, interesting to see. Um, so, you know, this guideline is largely, it's, it's, it starts from an assumption of a grade three or four blunt pancreatic injury. Um, you know, the, the, the AAST grading is based largely on pancreatic ductal integrity. So for kids, what do you think is the best imaging modality to make that decision? Is it CT? Is it MRCP, ERCP? What, what do you think is the best way to yeah, that's a great question. Um, CT is really not very good at seeing the duct, and there's a lot of just guesswork on whether the duct is um, injured or not, just based on how the you know the body of the pancreas looks. Um, we actually did study. We compared CT to MRCP and found in one of our my other publications, we we found that the duct is more clearly seen in MRCP than CT, but it's not necessarily. Um, it can't always tell you if it's disrupted more than CT. And um, so just, so MRCP, you know, gives you a better picture, a prettier picture, but it doesn't necessarily add more information to what you're getting for the CT and just assuming just based on how um, basically displaced the, the two pieces of the pancreatic parenchyma are, um, assuming that there is a ductal injury there. There's a lot of secondary signs that you have to look for as well, such as, you know, fluid around the pancreas and, and things like that suggestive of a duct injury. And so um, when we looked at that it, with CT and MRCP, we really didn't find that there was that much of a difference. By far, the, the um, gold standard, though, of diagnosing this would be ERCP. Of course, that is invasive. Um, and a, a lot of pediatric centers actually don't have um, advanced endoscopists. And so it's not as easily available as it might be at adult centers. 
But um, with ERCP, and we looked at this as well, all the centers that had ER, the ERCP for pancreatic injuries in children was most useful for diagnosis of duct injury and for um, dilation of strictures if they, you know, uh, happen down the line. Really not that helpful for trying to get a stent across the, the injured duct because it's so small, so distorted. Um, or putting a stent, like an ampullary stent, didn't seem to make much of a difference in outcomes or um, resolution of fluid collections. So if you, you know, I think what we've t- what we tell people, if you are, um, if you're making a decision, if you're in the camp of, um, you know, doing distal pancreatectomies, operating on these kids, which 50% of the country is at this, is at this time, um, then you and you want to make your decision, um, you know, this is really going to influence your decision on whether you're going to operate or not, then you might want to consider an ERCP because that's going to give you the most um, accurate um, data regarding the duct. Mm. Okay. Um, and just overall in your experience uh, and, and having this being an area of interest for you, can you give me an estimate of what percentage of patients um, actually go on to require surgery and maybe what the indications may be for, for you know, initial operative as management? As far as the initial operative management, that is completely surgeon dependent. But um, what percent of patients fail non-operative management and then require surgery? Is that what you're right. referring to? Right. Um, it, it's low. I mean, I think that the, the most um, common reason would be for prolonged pseudocyst, right? So needing like a cyst gastrostomy or something like that. But it's very, very, um, very unlikely where you've just watched a kid for a while and then need to go and try to do a distal pancreatectomy. That's extremely low in all the, the, the um, data that we collected from the 20 centers. I would imagine too that uh, patients that have other reasons for operative intervention and, and bad, you know, distal pancreas injury. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to be in there anyway. Then, and and maybe that's a totally different patient population than this guideline is meant to. Yeah, we those are those are excluded if you're going in anyway. Although some people will just leave a drain and not um, not do a distal pancreatectomy if you were going in for a bowel injury or something like that. Sure, sure. Um, okay. Um, Next question is, um, so let's say uh, I'm at a center that kind of maybe does both adult and children. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, when to transfer. Um, oh. Should I transfer all pancreas injury, uh, kids with pancreas injury, or should are there some that I, I should watch? What are your thoughts on that? You know, if this guideline becomes more popular and is followed, uh, you know, kind of like the sp- liver spleen guidelines, right? They're so they're so prevalent now that I think adult centers or mixed centers are more comfortable with um, with observing these kids because of the guidelines. You know, it, it gives you a sense of security or something, I guess. Um, but you know, at the moment, I think. I would say that the best thing would be to transfer because there's just such differences, as you know, in uh, managing pancreatic injuries and in adult patients. And, um, you know, the kids may, they may be getting unnecessary interventions that, you know, because I think the adult pancreas is just such a scary organ um, that the kids may be getting some unnecessary interventions that they could have possibly avoided. I, I totally agree. More likely to get imaging, more likely to get labs, and then in that case, more likely to have not correct protocols for the imaging and all the other reasons that right. uh, you know pediatric trauma centers are important. So, um, I guess my last question, um, you know, at the sort of towards the end of the guidelines, say so you make it through the hospitalization, kids doing better. Um, what sort of follow up? How long after the injury do you follow these kids? And what about um, you know, imaging down the road, 
great question. Um, what, what about? And so in our prospective, you know, before before the trial, it's kind of all over the map, right? But mm-hmm. in our prospective trial, we've standardized follow-up. And uh, we're seeing these patients, everyone comes back two weeks um, after discharge, just kind of a routine, you know, follow-up. Imaging is only obtained if they're symptomatic, okay? Because they may still have a residual fluid collection, but if they're not symptomatic, we're not going to do anything about it. Um, we are continuing to follow these patients up to a year. And the reason for that is to see if um, any of them develop pancreatic insufficiency, because I think that that is still a question that we don't know. Um, It has been shown that even if you, obviously, if you operate and you take out half the pancreas, that there's that. But even if you don't operate, um, the distal part of the pancreas may atrophy. And so you are still left with essentially a partial pancreatectomy. Um, and we're not sure there's some data in kids to suggest that, um, that, that might be leading to more pancreatic insufficiency than we, than it is in adults and that, that, that we're aware of, which would, you know, make it even more important to try to preserve the pancreas, just like we preserve the spleen and everything else. Because right now it's considered, um, okay to take out because it, you know, as, as far as we know, it doesn't have any long-term sequela. So that's why we're following for that. And are you uh, restricting the kid's activity during a, a set amount of time like we do for spleen or liver injury? Oh, um, yeah. There's not, a, there's not a set guideline on that. It's no. I think it's just if you um, – I, I usually tell my patients if you're still tender, then you shouldn't be doing anything. But, but uh, no, we, no we, haven't, we haven't come up with that. That's too hard to, that's too hard to prove. <laughs> Too hard to quantify, yeah. And, and I'd imagine that most kids that are still tender are going to probably do a good job of taking care of themselves. Anyway. Right, right. Um, in my experience, in my personal, it seems like most kids are smarter than me about returning to activity and eating and all that kind of stuff when they're ready Absolutely. to do it. Absolutely, that, that's it. exactly they'll, right. They'll me... I mean, you know, a lot of these injuries do ha- happen with bike from bike handlebars. And so I definitely tell my patients to avoid <laughs> riding a bike for a little while, but a lot of them don't want to anyway. They're, they're pretty freaked out by the, by the accident. So I guess that's one thing. Yeah. Well, this has been very informative. I, I think um, unlike maybe some of the other organ injuries that we've talked about, um, this one uh, with pancreas injuries are, are fairly different from adults. And so I think this is very uh, important information to get out to those of us that occasionally take care of kids. And, uh, you know, because it is it is decidedly different than I would manage mm-hmm. an adult uh, patient. So I, I, I thank you for your time and, and for your efforts, not only in this guideline, but in, in, in ongoing work that you're doing in, uh, in figuring you, out these you. questions. Um, any last minute uh, messages you wish maybe, you know, those of us outside of the pediatric world would know about pediatric trauma or pancreatic trauma um... in kids in particular? Well, no, I guess I will say that the pseudocysts are, you know, I think a lot of people call it a pseudocyst maybe too early. Um, so just let's just call it parapancreatic fluid, organized fluid collection. Um, we have uh, at our center and at other centers, um, just simple, just putting a drain in, you know, ultrasound guided drain has actually been quite effective and has not led to fistula, which I think is a, a huge fear in, in adult patients that you can't, you can never drain a pseudocyst because it's going to lead to a fistula because, you know, it's, it's, it communicates with the duct at some point. We haven't seen that. And, and, and looking at um, other centers, they really didn't see that either. So again, I don't know if that's just a function of the healthier kid pancreas um, or, or what it is, but that's something that has, that is effective if you have a large collection that's symptomatic. 
Okay, great. Well, Dr. Nagmathuria, thank you very much for your time and uh, spending time with us here on the podcast today. You're welcome. Great talking to you. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.